Well, good morning. Well, we began this sermon series on April 23rd last year. And here we are nearly a year later, finally looking at the amazing concluding chapters of the gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 26 is an emotion-filled chapter in which the tension is continuously mounting as Matthew rapidly recounts one scene after another on the Wednesday and Thursday before that first Good Friday. This chapter is filled with drama in the constant back-and-forth focus on things being plotted or predicted and then on those same things actually coming to pass. But then interspersed between all those tension-filled plots and predictions coming to pass are several powerful moments what we might call God moments, touching scenes focused on Jesus in the last couple days before he would voluntarily die on a cross for the sins of the world. It's like in the midst of all the many supporting characters coming and going on the stage of this story, and in the midst of many troubling circumstances in these concluding days, Matthew very intentionally puts Jesus right in the spotlight, center stage, in three beautiful scenes. I was center stage once, in high school, with a chorus line behind me. Yep, a chorus line of girls dancing behind me as I sang a song. Unfortunately, I didn't take it too seriously, and I forgot my lines. Somewhere in the middle of the song, I kind of lost my place. Well, that meant the chorus line girls lost their place and what are they supposed to do and I'm trying to find my lines in my memory and they're trying to do whatever they're doing behind me and I'm not daring to look and well I'm not actually sure I remember how it all ended but I just know I was really embarrassed and I was really in trouble well Jesus was on center when he when Jesus was center stage there was no embarrassment at all Let's take a quick look at this chapter. I'm going to rush through it right now and show you how dramatic it is. It begins with when Jesus had finished all these sayings, which Pastor Peter spoke to us about last Sunday from Matthews 24 and 25. Jesus then made his fourth pronouncement to his disciples that he would be delivered up to be crucified. And this time he says it will happen after two days. Then, suddenly there's a scene change. The chief priests are gathered in the palace of the high priest, plotting to see how they might be able to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Then there's another scene change, with the spotlight now on Jesus in center stage, as Jesus is anointed with costly perfume by Mary in Bethany, a village about two miles east of Jerusalem. Then scene change. Now Judas is going to the chief priests and begins plotting how he can betray Jesus. Then another scene change. Jesus prepares for and begins the Passover meal with his disciples and predicts that one of them will betray him. Then another scene change. The spotlight is back on Jesus. Center stage. As Jesus explains that he will offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Suddenly, another scene changed. Jesus now predicts that all his disciples will fall away and abandon him this night and predicts that Peter will deny knowing him three times this very night. Then scene change. Spotlight is back on Jesus, center stage, as Jesus is praying fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane and surrenders to his Father's will. Another scene change. 
the predictions are being fulfilled. He's betrayed by Judas and all his disciples fall away as the mob takes Jesus to the high priest. Then another scene change and Jesus' pronouncements begin to be realized as Jesus is taken to the high priest and to be put on trial. And then another scene change as Jesus' prediction is fulfilled as Peter is confronted by Peter in the courtyard. And he denies knowing Jesus three times and he went out and wept bitterly. There is so much drama going on as we go from one scene to the other. Check out the rhythm of this chapter in the way that Matthew tells it. There's pronouncement, then there's plotting, then there's Jesus, then there's plotting, then there's a prediction, then there's Jesus. There's prediction, then there's a prediction, then there's Jesus, and then fulfillment, 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 fulfillment. This is the rhythm of the drama that Matthew is telling us. Clearly, Jesus is the main character throughout this entire chapter. But there are also three obvious moments when Matthew very intentionally puts the spotlight on Jesus. Center stage. And this morning, I want to look at those three scenes. I want to look at those three precious and emotional moments to see what Jesus wanted to communicate to us through them. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that this story was recorded for us to read and take in and be impacted by. And I pray you'd impact us by your words and by these events this morning as we look at what happened to you during this critically important moment in history in which you changed history for all eternity. Jesus' name, amen. So let's read the first scene in which Jesus is in the spotlight, center stage. I'm going to start, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 26. I'm going to start at verse 6. It's going to appear behind me in the English Standard Version. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Matthew surrounded this story with two scenes. A scene in which the chief priests are plotting to kill Jesus, and another scene right after in which Judas is plotting how to betray Jesus. And I believe the contrast between these Stories that are that bracket this this scene of Jesus' anointing are meant to create this contrast. It's 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 meant to create uh, to draw attention to the incredible devotion to Jesus, which shines all the brighter compared to the darkness of these evil plots before and after the story. Matthew wanted to get our attention. He wanted us to pay special attention to this woman's devotion. So he created this contrast, evil, and then something good, and then something evil. And look, look at how brightly this 
good thing shines in between. Yet Matthew, as much as he wants to draw attention to the scene, he doesn't even give this woman a name. We know it's Mary by looking ahead to, the, to another gospel written by the Apostle John. He, he explains in that gospel that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Matthew knew who Mary was. He would have been there when Jesus raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. And that was a miracle that would have had a huge impact on Mary's devotion to Jesus. But I believe Matthew intentionally left Mary's name out of this story because he was so focused on what she did for Jesus rather than who she was. He even quoted Jesus as saying, what she has done will always be told in memory of her. But did Jesus want this tender act of worship to be remembered as an example to follow or just as a loving gesture to be admired? I personally think that Jesus wanted this extravagant act of devotion to be such an inspiration to all his disciples that for all time, his disciples would want to follow her example. And what an example it was. Ancient historians tell us that the best ointments were stored in alabaster containers. The Gospel of Mark reveals that this ointment was pure nard, which was a scented oil that was extracted from a root native to India. Hence, Matthew tells us that it was very expensive. The Gospel of John tells us it was worth 300 denarii. One denarius was one full day's wages for a laborer at that time. So this was, this was 300 days wages worth of perfume. Now if we use Manitoba minimum wage workers to sort of measure this, 300 denarii would be $26,760. $26,000 in one anointing. That's what Mary did for Jesus. What sort of person gives up $26,000 for one single act of devotion to God? That doesn't sound like an act of devotion that too many people can do too often. It seems a bit out of reach. I, I don't have any alabaster jars, and I don't have any nard, but I also don't think I can give Jesus 300 days worth of my wages on an ongoing basis. But I don't believe Matthew or Jesus wanted us to be focused on the exact value of the oil. He wanted us to notice the absolute sense of abandonment in worship. The sense of, I'll do anything for you, Lord. You're worth everything to me. It was that sense of devotion that Matthew wanted to communicate. The disciples, who still weren't thinking very clearly in those days, labeled this attitude as wasteful. Why this waste? They asked. But Jesus called it beautiful. He said, she's done a beautiful thing to me. I call it devotion. Extravagant devotion. Because loving devotion in its deepest and most expressive forms will always appear wasteful. Looking at this account, I can't tell you why this woman would be so much more devoted than the 12 disciples were. Because both she and the 12 disciples had been with Jesus and seen him do amazing miracles. And even though Matthew, who was one of the 12, knew that 
This was the Mary who'd sat at Jesus' feet, soaking in his words, listening to him, while her sister Martha busied herself with all those other details and didn't have time to listen to Jesus. And even though Matthew knew this was the same Mary who had seen Jesus raise her brother from the dead, Matthew makes no mention of any of those things. As though all he wants his readers to know is that expressions of extravagant devotion are never a waste, but are always something beautiful. There was no one else of whom Jesus said, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why was she the only one of whom Jesus would say this? Perhaps it was because there was no greater act of devotion found in the Gospels. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's true. This may be the greatest act of devotion I, of any disciple or person following Jesus. But it's probably also true that it's because devotion is what God values the most. Before I was married, we were preparing for our honeymoon. And I... Ron McLean did our premarital counseling and he planted a little seed in my mind that caused me to pursue something. I started shopping around for, to, to buy Fiona one gift. I'd give her one gift each day of our honeymoon. Each day there'd be a little wrapped gift that she'd receive and she'd get a gift every day. And, and uh, you know, in order to do this for 14 days, I had to stay within a certain budget range. I couldn't just spend 100 bucks a day or something. We had other expenses to do with a wedding and other honeymoon expenses. So, I had to keep within a certain budget. So it took a lot of shopping around. It took a lot of time. I was in malls a lot. Well, not my favorite thing. And I was gradually finding these 14 gifts. And I remember as I was shopping for one, I was in a jewelry store. And I wasn't buying anything expensive there because like I said, I, was within a bu- I had a budget. But I found something pretty simple there that was out of my budget. But I was just kind of admiring it, thinking, wouldn't it be nice? And suddenly the clerk came up and she said, she asked me what I was looking for, what I was doing. And I told her the the whole story about this honeymoon gifts. Well, she just loved that. And she dropped the price of that item right into my budget range. Like, I mean, she said, you can have it. It was like, wow, okay, thanks. So I got these 14 gifts. They were all wrapped. I wrapped them myself. And I, each day, Fiona would get one. And you know, the first day she was so surprised. Wow, she got a gift. How nice. Then the second day she got a gift. She goes, wow, you got me another gift. Well, by the third day she was catching on, you know. She goes, this is going to be every day. No, no, just for 14 days. You know? <laughs> So anyway, I gave her a gift each day. And wow, she loved it. And it was an expression of how lovingly devoted I was and am to Fiona. Jesus wants us to know and love him in such a personal way that we will respond to him with extravagant, abandoned, and wasteful worship. I mean, would anybody consider the money and the time that I spent on those 14 gifts, wasteful? No. That's what Jesus is looking for. Jesus' phrase, you will not always have me, tells us that the disciples should have been treasuring every moment they had with Jesus. You will not always have me with you. 
And we too ought to treasure every moment that we can find to get closer to Jesus, to meditate on his words to us, and to remember the wonderful things he's done in our lives. This is why we, it's, it's so healthy and helpful to have a daily time with God in our lives. Seeking him, meeting with him, fellowshipping with God, getting to know him better and better, expressing our devotion. Extravagant, abandoned, and wasteful devotion is the result of truly knowing Jesus personally, which is the product of frequently seeking Jesus in prayer. And by doing so, we get to know him better and better. But in light of the indignation of these 12 disciples, do we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, am I prone to weighing whether or not such extravagant devotion to Jesus is worth it? Or do I love him so much that I want to express my worship in sacrificial ways to express how much he means to me? Can I, can I tell you one simple but costly way I can apply this to my own life? Or I can make a choice with not weighing whether or not it's worth it or not, but just making a choice because I so love Jesus. I am not a morning person. Not by any stretch. And I come alive a bit late at night. I'm a night hawk, night owl, whatever you want to call it. If you look at night owl in the dictionary, my picture is there. So going to bed early is hard, and getting up earlier is harder. Even if I go to bed early, I find it hard to get up. And yet, I feel it's worth it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of devotion, a sacrificial act of devotion to get to bed sooner so I can get up sooner so, so that I can have time in this quiet house before others are up and around and I can spend time with Jesus. That's one example of how we can express sacrificial devotion. Well, let's now look at the second scene in which Matthew puts Jesus in the spotlight, center stage. I'm going to start reading at verse 20, and then I'm going to jump to verse 26. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a fairly familiar passage to us. I read it just, just two weeks ago at a communion service here. This scene happened on the Thursday evening before the day on which Jesus would be crucified. As Jesus and his disciples were eating the Passover meal, a meal that celebrated God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, Jesus suddenly and bluntly announced the terrible news that one of them was going to betray him. And then Matthew immediately gives Jesus center stage as Jesus demonstrated the meaning of the Passover meal to his disciples. The meaning being that he's the fulfillment of the Passover meal. He's the lamb of the Passover meal. Then right after that, Matthew wrote that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. And he told Peter, you will deny me three times. So just as, the, just as Matthew surrounds the story of anointing, the, surrounds the story of the anointing of Jesus with stories of enemies plotting, 
He surrounds this story of the Passover meal with stories of the disciples failing. Before and after this Passover meal, there's examples of failure in the disciples. And yet, what does Jesus say to those flawed, failing disciples at this Passover meal? He offers them his body and his blood as a sacrifice. Like a sacrificial lamb of the Passover meal so that they can be forgiven for all those failings. In the midst of the evil plots of Jesus' enemies, we saw extravagant devotion. And in the midst of the failings of Jesus' disciples, we see extravagant love. This reminds me of an incredibly encouraging statement made about Jesus in the same context of his final evening with his disciples that the Apostle John records in the Gospel of John. He says, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Oh, that brings such rest to my soul to, to, to just digest that thought that he loved them. He loves us to the end. Here are the 12 guys with whom Jesus had spent the most time daily witnessing their weaknesses. 12 bungling, openly competitive, slow to understand men of little faith that Jesus had to work with in all their clumsy humanity for three years. And then at the Last Supper with his disciples still arguing and competing right in front of Jesus, boasting to him about being willing to die with him, with Jesus predicting that one of them would betray him, predicting that one of them would deny him three times, and that all of them would soon fall away, Jesus then showed them that he loved them to the end, despite all those flaws, as he passed out emblems of his body and his blood to them, emblems of a sacrifice he would soon make so that they could be forgiven for all those flaws and all those sins. Wow. I could not have loved those guys to the end. I'd have turfed them. You're out of here. You guys aren't doing well. I thought you'd be doing better by now. He didn't say that. And I know I'm more unreliable than they were. I have much less faith than those disciples showed at various times in the gospel stories. So I'm left in, this, in wonder at this Jesus who loves each of us as his disciples to the end. I lived in a desert village for a year in 1987 when I was single. And it's not easy living in a desert village, believe me. It might be okay for a day or two or a week or two, but you try living there for months on end in those extreme conditions with extreme diet restrictions and with the spiritual extremes of being the only, our team is the only Christians, this tiny little team, the only Christians in an entire province of Muslim fundamentalists. It was a, it was in, Sudan is a fundamentalist Muslim nation at the time and still is. And wow, it was, it was stressful. And I had the infamous reputation in that stressful environment of having gotten every single other person on the team either shouting mad at me or crying mad at me. I, I, I was a piece of work. And uh, I hadn't had a holiday for nine months, and they recommended before we left you should have a holiday every three months when you're living in these extreme conditions. I thought, I don't need that. And I 
stayed nine months without a holiday, and finally I, I realized I need a holiday. And so I decided I'll, I'll go into Khartoum at the next, the next trip somebody's making, and I'll, I'll head there. Well, I happened to get our driver so mad on the way to Khartoum that he said the next lorry, this is a roadless desert now. There's no street signs. There's no roads. This is just a roadless desert that only he knows the way. And he says, the next lorry that's coming the opposite direction, I'm stopping and I'm hopping in it. You guys are on your own because of me. And there's others in the car. And the, 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 you know, there's a lorry. A lorry actually comes from the opposite direction. And he stops. The guy stops and waves down the lorry. The lorry stops. He's going to get in. He's going to leave us stranded in a desert. All because of me. Because I'm such a piece of work. And so these other people in the vehicle are trying to persuade him and convince him not to abandon us because of that guy. You know? And so anyway, they convinced him. He got back and he drove us to Khartoum. Oh, I was so... I felt so terrible. I went straight to the director's office and I resigned. I said, I quit. I only had three months left in my time there, but I, I thought, I, there's no use doing anymore. I, I quit. I'm a, I'm a liability. And uh, the director said, Ken, take your holiday. We'll finish this conversation after your holiday. So I took my holiday. I went to Kenya for a couple of weeks. I was with Lance Nelson during those two weeks, having a great time with Lance. And it was a good holiday. And when I came back, I had a different perspective. And I went back to the director's office and I said, you know, maybe I don't want to quit. And he says, no, and I don't want you to quit. I want you to finish. And I want you to finish well. You go back in there and you finish. And I'm so glad that that director didn't take me at my word before that holiday. Because I don't know how I would have felt in the years following having quit something so close to the end, such, such a big deal in my life. But this director loved me to the end, despite my flaws and my failures. He believed that I could finish well. So thank you, Lord. What an encouragement Jesus' extravagant love is for those who never seem to get things quite right and who struggle to simply relax in God's love. It ought to encourage our souls to know that the Son of God will love us to the end. To the end of today, to the end of this year, to the end of our lives. Jesus will love us to the end. That's what was on Jesus' mind and in his heart as he passed around that bread and wine that night. Are you struggling today to believe that God could love you? Are you prone to wanting to beat yourself up when you fail? How many of us here ever struggle to believe that God may be getting tired of forgiving us for some repeated blunder in, in our character or in our behavior. I suspect that all of us are somewhat like these flawed disciples. And yet Jesus had genuine affection for them. Throughout his years of ministering with them, he loved them to the end. And that same Jesus who gave that bread and wine to his disciples also gave his body and his blood for us sacrifice he made so that we could be forgiven for all our repeated blunders, every one of our failures and flaws. So whatever your struggles, Jesus is inviting you to receive his extravagant love today. Even though that Passover meal was surrounded by failure in stories before and after, it didn't stop Jesus from loving them to the end. Finally, we get to the third scene in which Matthew puts Jesus in the spotlight center stage once again. The Garden 
of Gethsemane, a scene that should leave us awestruck. I'm going to start reading at verse 36. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When considering this story, so much is often said about the disciples failing to stay awake and to keep watch, that we can easily miss the real significance of what's going on here. This is not a story about the disciples. This is a story about Jesus. Jesus is at center stage here. The words Matthew used to describe what Jesus went through in Gethsemane are strong, forceful words. Sorrowful and troubled just doesn't capture what the Greek words in this passage really mean. It would have been more better to translate it appalled and profoundly troubled. Jesus even spoke of this being a depth of sorrow that was to the point of death. A sorrow so agonizing, a sorrow so unbearable that he felt it could kill him right then and there. But this great sorrow seemed to descend on Jesus quite suddenly as he entered the garden. It says he began to be appalled with sorrow as he went into the garden. The language suggests that he was reeling, even astonished as he entered the garden to pray. Luke's gospel says that he was in agony. What was going on here? Why would Jesus be reeling this way? Was it just because he was imagining the cross ahead of him? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. When so many of his followers would later die with such poise, singing hymns as they were attacked by lions, with their hands raised in prayer as they burned at the stake. I mean, those kinds of things happened. Why could they die with such poise while Jesus was going through this? I think the reason Jesus is suddenly in such agony is that he is suddenly actually beginning to feel the absence of his heavenly Father for the very first time in eternity. Imagine, after an eternity of perfect communion together, Jesus suddenly felt alone. But not only that, not only did he feel alone, Timothy Keller explains this scene by drawing attention to Jesus' use of the word cup. What Jesus was facing was nothing like the kind of death any of his followers would 
ever face. When Jesus prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His reference to this cup was a reference to God's wrath. And Jesus likely had Isaiah 51, 17 in mind, which says, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Many theologians, from Jonathan Edwards of long ago to Timothy Keller today, believe that in the garden, Jesus was given a literal glimpse of the cup of God's wrath. Keller writes, Suddenly, Jesus sees into the abyss. No father, no presence, no communion. Hell, rather than heaven, opens to his gaze. Separation from the father with with whom Jesus had enjoyed perfect fellowship for eternity past, and now he is getting a taste of the incredible agony of being separated from his father. William Lane writes, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. Jonathan Edwards believed that the Father had a purpose in this. The purpose in all this was to set the cup of wrath before Jesus so that he would be able to, and I quote, see where he was going, that he might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. So that when he took the cup, knowing what it was, his love to us would be infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. He saw the wrath of God. And he obeyed anyway. There's a little hint of the huge implications of Jesus' obedience in this garden that is revealed by a single word that Jesus used when he instructed his nine disciples to stay back. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. In the Greek Old Testament, which Jesus would have known, the same word used for sit here in Matthew, is used in Genesis 22, verse 5, when Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This was the amazing story of Abraham taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed at God's command. And when Isaac asked Abraham where the offering was, Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb. Is it possible that when Jesus said to his disciples, stay here, that Jesus was thinking of Abraham's servants when Abraham said, stay here, and of the journey Abraham and his son Isaac made up that mountain as Jesus spent time on the Mount of Olives? And perhaps he was thinking of that lamb that God promised to provide, the lamb that God was yet to provide, as Jesus stepped into the garden. This could be a fulfillment of that beautiful story 
God will provide for himself a lamb. But the most compelling hint of the great significance of this story is that Matthew's first readers would have, would have likely seen was that Jesus submitted to God's will in a garden. An echo of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. William Lane writes, Just as rebellion in a garden brought death's reign over man, Submission in Gethsemane reversed that pattern of rebellion and set in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. Jesus' perfect obedience in the garden provided a fulfillment of God providing that spotless lamb that Abraham spoke about as a sacrifice for the sin that had invaded that other garden so long ago. A sacrifice that brought our forgiveness. That's why we're here today. Even the forgiveness of those three boastful yet sleepy disciples. Yes, we can't forget the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Those three strong, boastful fishermen who said they'd die for Jesus rather than fall away and yet who couldn't stay awake. I mean, these are fishermen who'd spent many nights out in the boat, staying up all night fishing, but they couldn't stay awake in this garden. Jesus was so patient and gentle with them. At one point he said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He wasn't asking them. He wasn't saying, why aren't you praying for me? I'm going through agony here. He didn't say that. He said, why aren't you praying for yourselves? Temptation is coming. And then Jesus went back to praying in a way that modeled the kind of extravagant obedience that he wanted them to walk in when they eventually made Jesus the Lord of their lives. Yes, Jesus also calls us to extravagant obedience that says yes to God, no matter what he asks of us. And Jesus also promises his spirit to help us do so. You know, In other Gospels, in the Gospel of John, when John was explaining that Passover time, that evening at the Passover meal, he quotes Jesus as saying that very night, which is the same night as Gethsemane, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. That same night, before Gethsemane, Jesus had promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, which is the only way we can extravagantly obey God. We can't do it on our own. We need his help. And we don't need to fear when we fail either because God's extravagant love for us goes together with his example of extravagant obedience. They go together. He loves us. And then he gives us this example of extravagant obedience. Jesus is yes to the Father you see, was more than just a model for us to follow. By saying yes to his father, Jesus took the death penalty for our rebellion so that God would forgive us no matter how many times we fail. We may want to extravagantly obey, but we'll fail. But he's made a way for us to be forgiven and to continue asking for his spirit's help to extravagantly obey. Timothy Keller says, nothing, nothing, nothing we do wrong, no failure, no sin can stop us from, from, or separate us from God's love. He says his love for us has already taken everything that the universe could throw at it and it held fast. And you think that you, you are somehow going to be able to upset him 
Is Jesus going to look at you and say, well, that does it. Infinite existential torment was one thing, but I can only take so much. If the cup did not make him give up on us, the cup of God's wrath, nothing will. So what have we seen in this dramatic chapter, in these three vignettes with Jesus in the spotlight? We've seen extravagant devotion to Jesus that comes from spending time with Jesus, treasuring every moment we can find to get closer to him, to meditate on his words to us, to gratefully remember the wonderful things he's done in our lives. Spend time with Jesus and get to know him and become increasingly devoted to him. Extravagant love for us. That means we never need to doubt God's love and never need to beat ourselves up because Jesus has shown us that he wants to forgive us for all our repeated blunders and our ongoing weaknesses. Don't give up because you fail. Jesus' love for you will never fail. He'll love you to the end. Extravagant obedience to God that took Jesus to the cross as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our rebellion, but which also gave us an amazing example to follow while God compassionately helps us to extravagantly obey him in our everyday lives, despite our own temptations to be asleep when he calls us to follow him. He will help us by his Holy Spirit. Extravagant devotion to Jesus. Extravagant love for us. Extravagant obedience to God. That's what Matthew wanted to share with us in Matthew 26.